Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Power of the Gospel, with a message titled, Believers Groaning. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Years ago, I read about a product being marketed that never quite took off. It came in a little spray format. It was intended for dieters who had uncontrollable cravings for certain kinds of food they shouldn't be eating, and yet they wanted so very badly. And so a certain company decided to market something to people just like that. Here's how it worked. You could purchase a spray can and you would spray it onto your tongue would taste like ice cream or pie or chocolate or donuts, all sorts of stuff that any dieter would like to eat but really shouldn't because, well, you know, eating donuts and ice cream kind of makes you fat. And the idea was that you could spray a taste of donuts onto your tongue and you still taste donut without actually eating a donut. Now, as I said, this product never took off. And I think the reason for that is because a lot of people are just like I am. Look, I've done my share of losing weight in my life and this I know. If I should spray the taste of chocolate on the end of my tongue, I'm telling you, folks, I will not rest, and I don't care if it's 3.30 a.m. I will break into a chocolate factory to satisfy what has begun with an enticement on my tongue. A foretaste never makes me say, well, that's enough. A foretaste makes me say, I want more. It awakens in me a desire that is difficult to manage or control. And so if I want to lose weight, I try to stay away from desires that, once awakened, are not manageable. I know my weaknesses, but I will find a constructive way to suppress my desires and even supplant them with other desires, but I definitely do not fool myself into thinking that dabbling in my cravings will satisfy them. That's not how my flesh functions. So much for whether or not it's possible to market the taste of ice cream in a can for dieters. But I'm using this as an illustration of something that God has done for believers. In Romans 8, Paul speaks of the desire for the life to come that God has awakened in us when he gave us the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is so much more than the taste of ice cream on my tongue. But like the taste, once you get it, you want more. Let's read Romans 8, 23 to 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now I hope you can see that what I've done in my opening illustration, I've substituted the word first fruit which was found in this biblical text with the word foretaste. Let's see if I can justify that. You know, in the Old Testament, there were seven appointed feasts, seven holy convocations, events that called the community to worship, events that Israel was required to keep every single year. This means that Israel had a sacred calendar which marked how each year was to be lived. And one of those sacred celebrations was called the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, this feast was celebrated in the springtime, somewhere close to our present celebration of Easter. Unlike what happens in Canada and in the U.S. as well, we harvest our crops in the fall, but because of the climate of Israel, springtime was harvest time. And the Feast of the First Fruits was a celebration that marked the beginning of the harvest season. Now, this feast is described in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 to 14. 
At the beginning of the harvest, each Israelite was to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the tabernacle, and that sheaf was to be waved before the Lord. I mean, you could almost imagine everyone with a representative of their harvest waving it up into the air before God as an act of thanksgiving for all that God in his faithfulness has supplied. Now, of course, this was but the beginning of the harvest. Your offering on that day served only as a reminder that the rest of the harvest was still out in the field and that a lot of work in harvesting lay before you before it was all brought in. But this was your act of faith, that the rest of the harvest, which is what that sheaf represented, was waved before God. This was what was waiting for you. Now, throughout Israel's history, the idea of first fruits began to have a significance in other areas of life as well. Tithing was a kind of a first fruit. Whenever you gave your money, you gave before the rest of it was in as an act of faith that more was coming. Or consider the command that God gave of what Israel was to do when they entered the promised land. And I'm, I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 to 4. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I've come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Now, this is a passage of scripture that has become quite meaningful to me personally because of a very special time while I served in pastoral ministry. A young man from my congregation had just received his Ph.D. in computer sciences and had landed a very good job and had received his very first paycheck. He took that paycheck, which I guess he managed to get from his firm as an actual check, and he put it in a basket. And after the Sunday morning service was over, he brought it forward and he said, in keeping with Deuteronomy 26... And he told me he wanted to celebrate in this act of worship, knowing that there was a harvest of paychecks waiting for him in the future. But this first fruit was his acknowledgement that God was about to supply an abundance. And that's the background to the phrase in Romans 8.23, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Since Paul has argued in chapter 8, verse 9, that all who are truly in Christ have the Holy Spirit residing in them, and that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer causes us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and not of the flesh, we must therefore conclude that the things of the Spirit are the first fruit of the harvest that's still awaiting for us, ready to be brought in at the appropriate time. And so we begin to see how Paul is pulling together the entire teaching of Romans 5 to 8. Yes, we have been justified by the blood of Christ. And because of that, we are free from all condemnation. Yes, we were once in Adam, but now we're in Christ, our new Adam, which means no matter how deeply and how long we have sinned, we cannot be damned. We are recipients of abounding grace. Furthermore, we can't abuse grace as an excuse for sin, for we have been buried with Christ to our old way of life in our baptism, and we were raised to the new life of the Spirit. And because of this, we are enjoined in a fight against the flesh. While we now desire to do God's will, we wrestle with the flesh. But unlike those who simply whip themselves with the law, we realize that the law can only point out what is still wrong in us. It has no power to change us. 
But we're not fighting our warfare by whipping ourselves with the law. We're fighting our warfare by being led by the Holy Spirit. His presence in our lives is overcoming the slavery of the flesh and is rather giving us a boldness to approach the Father as sons and daughters, crying out, Abba, Father. Consider what we've already learned about the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, we are told about life and peace. And that has deeply satisfied our soul that all animosity between us and God has ended. In verse 10, we're told of of righteousness, the evidence of the life of the Spirit. In verse 13, we realize the power of the Spirit to put to death the sins of the flesh, to literally conquer those sins that seemed unmanageable in the past. And in verse 15, the cry, Abba, that deep, personal, loving, accepting access we have before the throne of the Father. But all of this is like the spray of ice cream or donuts on our tongue. It has awakened in us the desire for more. We will not be satisfied until the entire harvest comes in. And then, interestingly enough, Paul uses a word to express this passionate desire, this awakened desire. And the word he uses, well, it actually surprises us. It's the word groaning. We groan inwardly, he says. Now, as we mentioned yesterday, groaning can be a deep sound of pain which might emanate out of despair. But in Romans 8.23, these are the sounds of pain to be sure. But it is a painful cry that rises out of hope. We are eagerly awaiting or breathlessly awaiting our adoption as sons. You know, and when we come back, I want to help identify both the inner excitement all believers feel about the final consummation of all things superimposed over our present suffering and the ongoing battle for holiness. Stay tuned. On today's introduction, we're getting a sense of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as He enables us to get on the path of godly living. We recognize that as believers, we are the first fruits of the Spirit, a foretaste of what is yet to come when we will reign with God forever. This passage helps us to understand the tension and balance between an inward groaning and an ever-present hope. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will give some practical insight into how we can live out this reality today. There is nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything. That's the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things Scripture Calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever-present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Neufeld's new book, available in the new year. It's our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year. As part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barrier, we're offering this calendar for free just for the asking. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In Romans 8.23, Paul speaks of an inward groaning that believers experience. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are reminded of our incompleteness. For one, we are reminded that even though we have experienced 
the life to come, yet still we live now in frailty. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1-5, Paul also uses the imagery of groaning. There he says, while we're in this tent, we groan. He's comparing our current physical bodies with a tent, whereas the body that is to come is compared to a house. And on this note, I actually have a memory. In the evening during the winter, when in southern British Columbia, it's often raining with high humidity, which will chill you to the bone, I would often say to my kids when they were small, aren't you just glad we don't live in a tent? A house provides substance and warmth, protection from the elements. And that's exactly Paul's point. Our present existence is so insubstantial. One little virus, one inattentive moment in an automobile, one false step on the path, and this body is broken and destroyed. The presence of the Holy Spirit speaks of something so much greater. And the foretaste reminds us that something is there, and yet we groan for what is and what is promised is so very different. Of course, it's not only the certainty of death, but the reality of pain in this life. Suffering is also a cause for groaning. And that's why at the end of verse 23, Paul speaks of our hope. He says, what we await is our adoption as sons. And then he explains what aspect of adoption he has in mind. It's the redemption of our bodies. We're looking forward to a body that will not be as flimsy as a tent. And then as we move to verse 24, Paul adds a thought I want us to think about. He says, for in this hope we are saved. The grammar here is in what has been called the aorist tense, which is a decisive, punctiliar moment in time. At our salvation, at that moment in time, says Paul, something decisive happened. We were at that moment infused with hope. And here we get a sense that although God's salvation has already taken place, we are freed from our sins and the displeasure of God, the final effect of that salvation still lies in the future. One Christian teacher has said that we remain in the present hour only half saved. On the one hand, we know our sins are forgiven, and we know that we definitely do have peace with God. But on the other hand, we know we still struggle with sin, and we are only too aware that the present body is dying. See, all Christians live in a kind of overlap of two ages. We live in a time in which both the old and the new are at work in us. We see the effects of decay and death, and we cannot escape the groans of nature itself in which we live on a dying planet in dying bodies. And yet, the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, is in us, and we have experienced the life of God that is eternal, and we know that we have been joined to that which is indestructible. We live in an in-between time in which we have become oh so aware of light and darkness. And it is as if the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross reach into both the misery of human sin and into the eternal realm of the kingdom of God that will never pass away. And even if you've never heard it described that way before, the minute I explain it that way instinctively, you know exactly what I'm talking about. See, we know both crushing despair and inextinguishable hope. That's the groaning that exists in every single child of God. And by the way, it is this kind of theology of what we presently are in Christ that protects us from two kinds of errors. On the one side is the error that is called triumphalism. There are those who argue that Christians, if only they had faith, would be healed from all diseases, spared all suffering, win all arguments with those who disagree with us, climb out of every trap of poverty into wealth and prosperity, and be recognized for who we actually are, King's kids. 
And on the other side is what we might call a despairing Christianity. And we've all heard that as well. These are the people who moan. You know, the earth is under the control of the evil one, and all we can expect are for things to get worse until Christ returns again. So tie a knot at the end of your spiritual rope and just try to hang on until then. But in fact, both of these perspectives are wrong, and and in some way, both of them are right. See, I'm more than aware that both of these viewpoints have a lot of verses that can be used to bolster both positions. Those who argue triumphalism love to quote passages of Scripture that deal with physical healing and the driving out of demons. And those who argue for a despairing view quote the verses on cross-bearing and the call to suffering. The problems, however, in both perspectives become obvious not so much when you notice the verses they quote, but in the verses they refuse to quote. But in Romans 8, 23 to 25, Paul combines the reality of what Scripture tells all believers and what their experience is telling them as well. Now, please notice how Paul ends this section. In verse 24, he says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. Another way of saying that is to say, there is no such thing as hoping for something you already have. And then going on to verse 25, Paul adds, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I find it an amazing contrast in this short paragraph. Verse 23 had us waiting with eagerness, rubbing our hands as if the redemption of our bodies was now at hand. And verse 25 has us waiting with patience as if we must quiet ourselves for the time of our final redemption is still some distance away. See, these two elements, eagerness and patience, is one of the most difficult things to keep in balance. And here's why. If we overemphasize patience, we'll fall into pessimism and lack zeal and become apathetic. Yes, things are going to change when Christ returns, but that's probably still a long ways away. But if we overemphasize eagerness, we might be as those who predict that Jesus will come back within our expected framework, and then when things don't work out as we expected them, we're filled with frustration and lack of faith. I think what Paul urges on us is a kind of eager and zealous patience. We have and are learning to content ourselves that everything is indeed right on track exactly according to God's schedule and not ours. But we also know that we should pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're groaning with joy and anticipation until we get this whole thing. Anyone who has the Spirit cannot be satisfied with this world. You see, it's amazing how many people are satisfied with this world. Their dreams are this worldly dreams. They want houses and cars and a good income and early retirement and comfort. For they want a good job and good health and a good marriage. That's their dream. And those who want the good life and don't get it are groaning. But these are a different kind of groaning, don't you know? It's a groaning of despair and hopelessness. They too have their desires set in this life. Let me try to apply this. If you're dreaming of the kind of retirement where you drop out of work and commitments and you drop out of service and you drop out of being an effective servant of Christ, might I suggest you have no eager expectation that the day of the Lord will soon be at hand. You know, some time ago in a little book called Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper describes the life of a couple with no future yearnings. Here's what he said. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at that great day of judgment. Look, Lord, 
See my shells? Piper said, now that's a tragedy. And it is a tragedy. And if that's you, you have lost your ability to groan with hope. And let me give you another tragedy. It's a picture of a couple serving God, finding it more difficult than they had ever imagined, and groaning that they didn't have the kind of success they had dreamt of. And if that's you, you've lost your ability to groan with hope. See, what we so desperately need is a picture of life that has a sober realism of what we presently encounter mingled with an undying hope that is fed by the Holy Spirit. This is given by the Holy Spirit, and this is to be the life of all who believe. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for those who are listening. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those who are in despair, who have lost hope, and I pray for those who have given up on hope and now have their hope set only in this world. Heavenly Father, cure us from both ills. Heavenly Father, move us deeply again into the hope that comes with the longing of what will soon take place for the children of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, we've talked about some of this stuff before, but I think it's important to ask the question, Uh, Is it wrong to pursue the good life here on earth? Decidedly not. I mean, because God has given us life and he wants us to live it fully. So, you know, as much as I'll sometimes make comments about, you know, don't waste your retirement or things of that nature, I don't mean don't enjoy your retirement. I, I don't mean don't enjoy the moments that God has given you here. The only thing that I think I'm wanting to say is don't live your life in such a way that cancels out your hope. In other words, enjoy the moment knowing that what you have in the moment is premised upon the future glory that God has given us. And that, I think, also helps us to endure the difficulties that we face. So whether it's joy in the moment or difficulty in the moment, everything that we experience in the moment is given meaning by the fact that it means something in the future in what God has promised us. I hope that today's message has encouraged and challenged you. We've learned so many things about how to live with an eager expectation and patience for the hope that awaits us in eternity with God. Yet there's an underlying awareness of the suffering and despair that is part of every believer's life. There are also many foundational truths about the Holy Spirit and His unique role in our spiritual journey that we've covered in Romans chapter 8. Well, don't miss our final message this week in the power of the gospel as we study the Spirit's groaning. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 cruise is filling up faster than we'd imagined. You won't want to miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh and be encouraged with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest Amanda Stott. From April 5th to the 14th, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean, including Miami, Porta Plata, St. John's, and more. For more information, to download the itinerary or to sign up, Just visit backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by participants.